Okay, if you would uh, take your Bibles, our text for tonight is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you turn there, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6, excuse me, Paul makes a major transition here in Philippians chapter 3. Now oftentimes, just for your general knowledge, keep in mind that in most of Paul's epistles, perhaps with the exception of Hebrews, um, just a little joke there, uh, that at the midpoint of his epistle, typically there's a major thematic change. When we get to Ephesians of six chapters, chapters one through three are primarily focused on doctrine, chapters four through six primarily focused on application. So also in Colossians, chapters 1 and 2 being doctrine, chapters 3 and 4 being practice. So we see that same style. Now we don't, in Philippians, see that clear break of the first half being doctrine and the second half being application. He mixes it up for us in Philippians, but nonetheless there is a major transition that occurs for us here. He ramps up his argument as we'll see. Chapter 1 began, as you remember, with that great prayer. And then Paul reflected personally on his circumstances and how the gospel was impacting those circumstances. And then he gives short instruction on right living. And so right there in chapter 1, he moves through and we kind of get a, a whole summation of both doctrine and practice all put together in that very first chapter. Chapter 2 began with the massive encouragement about the church, the unity that exists there, and then gave the critical instruction on humility before it moved to the, the massive doctrinal perspective of the two natures of Christ. And this supported the previous teaching on humility because it was by humility that we see Jesus accomplishing all that he moves forward in. And it was in his submission to the Father. So that great encouragement and that follow-up of humility, which we're so familiar with, that should be a verse that all of us have, if not memorized, very close in our minds, Philippians 2, 3, for consider others more highly than yourselves, um, that Christ shows us that. That the Son of God came to this earth to live, to elevate mankind, to redeem us back. And so he was the perfect example of humility in that regard. And that led us to the section on obedient living. So now we've had two sections of application amongst these doctrinal pieces in chapters 1 and 2. Paul moves into another section of application and teaching, and it has a similar format to the previous applications in that it starts with encouragement and then talks about how we should live in chapter 3. Now, this seems very similar to the previous section, so the question is, how is this such a transition? Well, the transition occurs in the depth of application. He began in chapter 1 and he talked about right living. And it was kind of an ethereal view. This is how you ought to conduct yourselves. Again, a very similar theme that we see in much of Scripture. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in Colossians. That we're to walk, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he goes on to tell us about all of those details. And 
So we started with what it looks like for right living, and then he took us to obedient living in chapter 2. Took us a little deeper and started saying, okay, now here's what you do. And we started seeing these imperative commands, of which we're commanded to obey, because that's why they're in that form in the Bible. So right living to obedient living, and now we are going to look at the reality of living. We're going to see how the rubber really meets the road in this section tonight. And he starts talking about how we should live. And this is where our title comes from for tonight. I've titled our message, The Religious Dichotomy. The religious dichotomy. A dichotomy is two things that are, are varying ways, varying approaches. Two things that are, are distinct in their, in their differences. So as we consider this, I want to read through these first verses in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. But I want you to keep something in mind as we read this, that this is actually a longer section of Scripture. Philippians 3 actually goes on through to verse 11. Philippians 3, 1 to 6, there's a, a bold marker in chapter 7, but really this whole section, this is one whole section from verse 1 to 11. So I'm going to read that just to set it in your mind and then we'll dive into it and keep in mind that we'll be coming back to those following verses as we see how far we get tonight. So follow along as I read Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I've counted all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ." and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." We see Paul using his, his life as an example of a religious dichotomy. He becomes the example of our title in the text tonight when we think about the religious dichotomy. An example of this 
religious dichotomy is, is shown to us as we move through the text in Paul. And our first point that shows this, I've titled the encouragement. The encouragement in verse 1a. And in verse 1a, his exhortation and command is to, rejo- is to rejoice. And it's just this kind of of an encouragement that rejoicing is the joy that we are to have it is the delight that's in our life it is this that is the encouragement that we are commanded to bring forward and to to live lives where this rejoicing saturates that life his beginning word finally in verse 1 sounds to us like it might be an indication of an end but it's not It's telling us that this is the major transition that's going on. There's something big that Paul's about to tell us, and so he uses this word for there's still two chapters left, which helps us understand that. So we're only halfway through this letter. So finally, it's just telling us that there is this major transition. And he addresses them as my brethren or my brothers. It's a term of of endearment. It's a term that shows that there is a love and that there is a common bond and that he is reflecting himself on the same plane as the church in Philippi, as those to whom he is related as a brother and as we know from that term, really as even closer than a brother. So it is a term of endearment, but it is more a term of association. He is saying that as brothers, we are walking through the same things. When we think about brothers in a a family setting, we know that those brothers are living in the same household, that they are seeing the same discipline from their parents. They are interacting with their parents in similar manners. They are seeing the interaction of their parents and and trying to discern what's going on in the family. So, So there is a commonality that is going on between brothers. And that is very important for us in this text because as Paul uses himself as an example of this religious dichotomy, the brothers to whom he writes are going to, by application, immediately see themselves in this application and this example that he uses of himself. So the association is vital because it takes that illustration of himself and puts them squarely in the middle of that illustration. And notice Paul's command to rejoice is a command to rise above the situation. Rejoicing is not like happiness. Happiness is something we've often talked about. It is the same word that we see in the Beatitudes where the Lord says, blessed are That is the word happiness there. Interesting that most of those are somewhat contrary to what we would perhaps immediately consider as happiness. But rejoicing and joy are not that. They are not a function of our circumstances and situation. So he is telling the believers in Philippi here that they are to rejoice as his brethren and rise themselves up above whatever circumstances they may be in. And notice also that he stipulates the general area or the realm of this rejoicing as in the Lord. First time that this has been added. And further confirms that it's not a function of their circumstances. They are to be living their life in the Lord, 
and there's to be a rejoicing in all of that. Now, this is, this is an important understanding for us to understand because all of our lives are to be lived in the Lord. You know, if, if you go through that exact phrase in the New Testament, I was shocked to look at this. I thought I'd find out, you know, there's four or five things where we're to live in the Lord. You know, we're going to, to do this in the Lord and that Lord. 51 times in the New Testament alone. Over 120 times in the Scripture. But in the New Testament, 51 times we are told how to live in the Lord. Vital understanding for us to realize. Why is that? Because the circumstances of our lives, they change all the time, don't they? They ebb and flow daily, hourly, seemingly minute by minute. One minute everything's fine, and the next minute you get some horrible news, and from an earthly perspective, life is a train wreck. But in the Lord, things never change. It's always the same. Because Jesus is always the same, because he never changes. Just like we talked about this past weekend, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. So as we understand the continuity that exists in Christ, there is our continuity in rejoicing. Our lives are to continue to reflect that. And if we're focusing on our circumstances, we won't always be rejoicing. Because when we start getting our, our eyes on ourselves and, and we all can do it and have done it, we begin to have a little pity party. And, and, and that's not rejoicing. In fact, that's sin. And so we have to understand that when we have our eyes on Christ, when we realize that Jesus is in charge, that he is continually carrying us through, that never does he change, then it allows us to have this continuous rejoicing. So this perspective of rejoicing in the Lord is so important for us to understand. Because again, there is no, no change where clearly this is an encouragement when we consider rejoicing. I mean, we all want to rejoice, don't we? I, you know, nobody wants to be Eeyore. You know, every time you see Winnie the Pooh, um, Eeyore, you just, you're like, oh, poor Eeyore. Don't want to be Eeyore, but, you know, he loses his tail, and woe is me, and everything's a bummer for Eeyore. We don't want to be bummer people. Now, we meet people like that sometimes. But that's not who we are in the Lord. In the Lord, there is a joy and there is a delight. There is a hope. There is the hope of eternity that no matter how ugly it ever gets on this earth, that it's going to get far, far better in heaven. And the worst that we'll ever deal with is here. Well, clearly this is an encouragement, but again, then comes our second point. Our first point, the encouragement. Our second, the warning. I've called our second point the warning, and it actually begins in the middle of verse 1 and goes through verse 2. In the middle of verse 1, it says, To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, initially, we might think, how come this is a second point, Pastor? How come this is a different thought than rejoicing in the Lord? I mean, couldn't that be the same when he says, you know, that um, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me. Well, that could be talking about rejoicing. Has he talked about rejoicing before in the book? Absolutely. In fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 18, 
he uses the same word rejoicing, the same verb. In chapter 2 and verse 18, it's in the exact same form. It's a command to rejoice. So how is it that we know that this isn't talking about that component? So could it be these to which he's referring? Could it be the rejoicing? Well, it's the end of the verse that seals the issue for us. But to you, a safeguard. But to you, a safeguard. That word safeguard is literally something firm or something secure. And when he says, but to you, a safeguard, that word but is a contrast. Whatever was going on before, this is different. I was going to the store, but I forgot my wallet and I had to go back home. So it's showing that there's something different going on. So what is it that is different? What is different to this safeguard? What is different to that which is secure? Or what is it that is not secure? What is it that is not safe? Well, obviously it isn't rejoicing. Because rejoicing is not only safe, it's glorious and it's a wonderful command. So something else is going on here. There's something else that isn't safe. There's something else that is not secure that needs to be considered. The fact that we also have a period in the middle of verse 1 gives us another indication that there is a unique thought that is stopped in the middle of a verse. That doesn't happen very often. Now we've got to be careful. We know the verse numbers are not inspired. So um, that, that doesn't give us any real pause. Although it isn't like there was no thought put into it. So um, we do want to pay some attention. But we ought not be concerned that we see this kind of a scenario arising. And verse 2 then is the same thing he wrote about. And that verse 2, the same thing he wrote about that's no trouble and is a safeguard is that they are to beware of the dogs and beware of evil workers and beware of the false circumcision. Now, as he gives us this, this is really where we see the warning. This is where we see the danger. So the question comes, he just said, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard to you. So that means he wrote about it before. Where is that? Turn your Bibles back to chapter 1 and 2, verse 27. Chapter 1 and verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's statement, even in verse 27, is that they might not be doing that. So when he commands them to stand firm, it's so that this will happen when he comes. He goes on in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So now we have opponents that are coming that he's talking about. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So you go back and listen to that message and see all that we went through. But the suffering and the conflict and those who are coming against them are all associated. 
So when he says, it's no trouble for me to write this again, that's what he's talking about. There have been a number of different uh, academicians and, and alleged theologians that have decided that uh, because of the structure of all of this, that there's a, a lost letter of Philippians between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So if you find that and you're reading it in some of the commentaries you're reading, that'd be a great ta- place to take that commentary and put it in the round file where it would be best served. So we see the direct connection here and we understand what this is and what the danger is. So now the contrast is namely that which is not safe and that which he previously warned about. And the first of these three warnings is beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now we're not talking about a little puppy dog like we have at our house that has really sharp teeth and that might chew on your fingers and put holes in them or in your face like you've seen me come a few Sunday mornings with or my sweet bride. No, it's something much more than that. And it isn't even a house dog who's larger and like my stepmother who is petrified of dogs. She used to get near our, our golden retriever who would lick you to death and she would just be terrified. But it's not that. It's not even outside dogs. Those who might be a little more fierce because they're a little more rough and tumble. It's not that. In fact, it's not even work dogs. It's not like cow dogs. Uh, it's not like sheep dogs, those big Pyrenees dogs. It's not even like military dogs or police dogs, the German shepherds. Although we're beginning to get closer with that. These dogs that existed in that day and age were a vicious breed of dogs they didn't have dogs okay they didn't have house dogs you didn't have pets of that type in ancient israel it just did you were trying to make ends meet how often do we see in the scriptures talking about those the day workers who are working for a denarii which is equal to one day's work and they were to be paid that day so that they would have food it's a hand-to-mouth kind of existence i'm not going down to the dog sport dog food store to spend 20 bucks a bag on a 35 pound bag of food to feed this dog that ain't happening So the dogs that are there are a vicious breed of these pack animals that are going about. They're mangy. They're going about. They are attacking people. It's interesting that we see the same reference to dogs throughout the scripture. All the way back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 22 and verse 31 Regarding meat, it's, it, we're told that one of the law elements is that meat that is torn by dogs is not to be eaten. So these dogs are ravenous creatures. They're, they're killing things and, and leaving the meat about. So it's a, it's a very fierce brood that they're talking about here. We see another reference to that in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 13, bring, or Jer- verse 3, Jeremiah 15 and verse 3 gives us another reference to the dogs. Jeremiah 15, 3. I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. This is talking about the end times judgment. So as, they, as God pictured for them, the animals that will come in and consume the flesh, 
By the way, I, I've got a, a picture book of Israel down on my desk, and um, I, I kind of change the page every couple days to refresh myself on it. And what came up yesterday, or what came up on Sunday, was a picture of the Valley of Jezreel, where the Battle of Armageddon will occur, where the blood will run from those that are slain to the depth of a horse's bridle, about up to here. And you look at that picture, and it's a, it's a panoramic picture, but the Valley of Jezreel is massive. And the amount uh, of bodies that are there. So the, these dogs that are kind of come in along with these animals, again, showing the fierceness and, and the horror of that. But these dogs are not speaking of literal animals. This is a figurative reference to show us this wickedness but what's really being spoken about is people that are acting like these dogs. These that are vile and ravenous. Men who, as Dr. MacArthur says, are of a sinful and uncontrolled character. Very interestingly, we see this very same reference to dogs as related to men in the last book of the Bible. Revelation 22 and 15, one of the last sections of Scripture, beginning in verse 14 for context, as we're talking about the river of life in New Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Dogs are the only animal mentioned there and it's ta talking about an animal because at the end it says everyone, not everything. So dogs are associated with the sorcerer, the immoral person, the murderer, the idolater and everyone Everyone who practices lying. How important is it to be a truth teller? Significantly so. So when we understand that, who are these men? These are, the, are what are often termed uh, by different pastors and by others looking into Paul's epistles as the Judaizers. Perhaps you've heard that term before. They are the, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the others, who are attempting to draw the Christians away and to draw them back into Judaism. Trying to pull them away from Christ and to pull them back to the rituals. It's exactly what the book of Hebrews is about. This is the danger for them, is that these Judaizers are infiltrating the New Testament era and they are attempting to retrieve and pull people back. Very stunning to recognize this phrase, dogs, with regards to these Judaizers, these religious elite. Because do you know what the Pharisees called the Gentiles? That's right, called them dogs. And now we're seeing a complete reversal, a dichotomy. Now we're seeing that the dogs are the one who the Lord is referencing as those that are the wicked and the ravenous and the horrific men. This is indeed a dichotomy explained to us here. Also, 
we see that not only is there a warning in this first point of beware of the dogs, but there is a warning in the second of three, beware of the evil workers. The evil workers are a, re- are a reference to the effects and the results of these Judaizers. The activity, again, is a paradox as the, these are those who pose as the religious elite. These are those who desire to lengthen their phylacteries and their tassels, as Jesus spoke of in the New Testament, seeking to show themselves as more righteous. You know, I think one of the best examples is to understand the New Testament picture of giving in the temple. In the temple, there were, I believe there were seven brass horns that were set up in the wall of the court of men. So there was uh, the court of women on the outside, there was the court of Gentiles, then in beyond that was the court of women, then there was the court of men before you got to the actual formal tabernacle court. And in this court between were these seven large, kind of as if we pictured a, uh, a tuba that was straight. Big old huge head on it and it narrowed down and necked down into this smaller vessel that would go into a collection area in the bottom. And the religious elite would go there to give their tithings. And there was an elevated stair that they could go and stand on and they would be seen from both sides of the wall. Both from the court of women as well as from the court of men which made that they also could see from the court of the Gentiles because it was lower still. So there's this elevated place that the Pharisees would go with their money. Well, they wouldn't just go. They would bring their servants with them because certainly I can't be seen as carrying money that could be working or something on the Sabbath. So they would have their servants go with them and one coin at a time they would put in their offering that would clang around these brass bells, these these brass horns. This was a picture of those who pose as the religious elite. This is a picture of all that Jesus said about giving in Matthew chapter 6. Let not your right hand know what your left is doing. He wasn't saying that somehow we're going to deceive our right or left hand. He was saying don't be like these Pharisees who are out there making this big to do. Well these are the ones that are the evil workers. Those whose activities are again paradox as they pretend to be the religious elite. They pretend to be the righteous and upstanding, but instead they are the wicked. They are the evil workers. This phrase is used again in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, But really, I think the Lord illustrates it best in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15. The Lord says in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So as they go around, and they, these Judaizers, and they attempt to draw people away from Christ, they make them twice as much a son of hell as themselves evil workers a horrible consideration those who would draw those away from christ now we know that those who were truly the lords would never be drawn away but there were those who were not there that they would pull back remember the parable of the soils 
and those four soil types, three of those four being those who kind of looked okay, short of the first one. I mean, the first ones clearly were not saved. The second, well, the seed sprang up, so were they believers? Or the third, the seed sprang up for a while and grew strong. But then the, the effects of riches came and, and drew it away. It's only that fourth group that yielded seed that was 30, 60, and 100 fold that were true believers. The rest are not. So there's all those that appear like they are. Why these three powerful warning passages in the book of Hebrews to this middle group? Because the church then and the church now, beloved, is full of those who think they're okay, but their lives are not reflecting true belief. They're not living in obedience. They're not growing in Christ. They're not fulfilling the one and others of the church. They're just showing up and pulling from everyone. They are the, the pew sitters. And there is no room for bench warmers in the kingdom of heaven. The third warning is beware of the false circumcision. The Greek word translated as false circumcision is also well translated as mutilation. Mutilation. J.B. Lightfoot notes that in the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament, this word is only used to describe mutilations and incisions forbidden by the Old Testament law, such as Leviticus 21.5. Leviticus 21.5 references cuttings of the flesh along with tattooing and shows them to be wicked efforts contrary to God. You know, we see that and I don't know, I, I hope that you have no understanding of this. It's got to be one of the most grievous things that I've run into in my time doing youth ministry. But the young people of our day, many of them are cutting themselves. And they're, they're physically taking razor blades. And it's not as if they were um, attempting suicide necessarily. But they're cutting themselves and creating these scars and marks and bloody situations as an effort to, in a lot of cases, get back at their parents. But it, it, it's a horrific scenario. And, and it is, by biblical admonition, it, it's motivated by Satan. And we have to understand the horrors of that and to realize that that is all that's being described by this false circumcision. It's interesting, the old King James Version as well as the American Standard translate this word as concision. Concision. And it's an effort to parallel the word with verse 3's circumcision. Concision and circumcision. And it's an excellent parallel because those two Greek words are the same type of a similar sounding word as is concision and circumcision. We, we call that actually paranomasia. It's a little like a pun. It's two words that sound the same but are very, very different. So um, this is that same word for mutilation or as we have in our uh, New American Standard, false circumcision. Well, we have two divergent perspectives here in our first two points reflecting the religious dichotomy of our title. There is the joy and delight of rejoicing that comes to us in the encouragement, and then there is the horrific warning that comes forward to us in this three-phase warning. 
Well, this dichotomy blossoms in our third point, the reality, which is, begins in verse 3, where it says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see the parallel there? You see the dichotomy? The first two points talk about the positive, like the encouragement, true circumcision, worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus. But then the second part, the warning, is to put no confidence in the flesh. Now this is going to move out radically through the rest of our verses through verse 6. Unfortunately, we're going to have to come back to that next week. But already we see this powerful religious dichotomy. And beloved, it is no different in our day and age. It is, it is, the danger is in us. We have that tendency to wrong religiosity. You know, the important focus is that we are talking not about religion. As we were speaking about today, we are talking about a relationship. Religion means nothing relationship with Christ is everything. There are religions all over the world. I mean, why is Catholicism such a draw? Why are people so enslaved to it? Well, who are we? Are we not people of the majority? 11 billion Catholics can't be wrong, can they? Yeah, they can, and they are. But we go with that, and so we have to recognize that that can be our tendency because this all boils down to an individual perspective. Paul is showing us an individual application of either this encouragement or this warning, and now he's blowing it up and taking it into the way that we consider ourselves. And that's what we'll see when we come back together next week and then, Lord willing, continue on through that next section of verses. So take time to look into those, consider those, and then, beloved, above all, we have to just reflect upon how we look alongside of this. What areas of our lives are focusing on these religious, legalistic perspectives and not on legitimate submissive expressions of relationship to Christ.